Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined by Brian Tobel. Brian is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Schoolhouse, which is focused on delivering really transformative learning experiences to small groups. There's been a lot of talk about pods. Beyond podcasts, there's a new kind of pod that's, uh, that's emerged this year, the micropod, the learning pod. Going to want to talk about all of that with Brian, but before we do any of that, I want to begin by welcoming Brian to Trending in Education. So Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's great to be here. Yeah. So uh, full disclosure, we had a nice uh, cup of coffee. When you say I had a cup of coffee with that guy, we had a cup of coffee about a year ago when we were talking about what's new and emerging in the world around us. We even speculated about getting you on Trending in Education or on a podcast of some sort. And lo and behold, a year later, we are delivering on that. So good job by us. But quite a bit has transpired in the interim. And we're going to want to get into a lot of that with you shortly. But to begin, I'd like to ask my guests for their origin story. What got you to where you are at this point in your career, particularly uh, as someone who has a, a long and varied set of experiences in learning and education, that's really what this show is about. Can you tell us what got you to where you are at this point in your career? Yeah, fundamentally, just a lot of good luck. That's really what got me here. I started out as a teacher. So I taught, I think it was like second through fifth science and technology in the Harlem Children's Zone. So I started out as an elementary school teacher teaching science and Moved from there into educational research. So I worked at a research firm for three years, working with a professor from Columbia, just you know, efficacy studies, after-school programs, some Singaporean math stuff. And then from there, I had a close friend who was in the, you know, the startup game. And he, his company failed, and he was looking for something new. And I said, hey, I have an education idea. And that ended up turning into my first company in like 2009, 2010. Mm. which was basically an educational quiz game. At that time, MOOCs were taking off. Yeah. They were starting out. And one of the things that we saw was a problem with it was just engagement. Only 7% mm -hmm. of people would finish. Mm -hmm. So we started with a lot of gamification because that was popular then when Foursquare yeah. was also taking off. Mm -hmm. So built a gamified educational quiz game. And then that, was, that put me on the path that I'm on now. So from there, I've either been working at ed tech startups, usually as like a head of product or in a product role, sometimes in an academics role. Mm -hmm. And then I've started three of my own. So Schoolhouse is the, the third company uh, that I've started. And I would say like the trend line through all the work is, I've always just been looking for ways to measurably improve educational outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so Hickory, which was my last company, was a learning management system or an LMS that would make predictions on when you're likely to forget. Mm. So using a lot of like space repetition algorithms, but yeah. we built them all. And one of the things that we saw from there that I then saw in the work that I was doing at WeWork was that the teacher was just massively important. Mm -hmm. We would see that 65 to 75% of the learning outcomes was just who's the teacher. Mm -hmm. And then NPS or student satisfaction is almost 100% the teacher, right? Yeah. Like we could see that students couldn't tell if the curriculum was bad or the teacher was bad or things like that. Right. That's what brought me to Schoolhouse was seeing in the data how important the teacher was. Right. And it was a very big paradigm shift for me because before that, I was trying to replace the teacher. 
right. with software. <laughs> and then I kept seeing that I couldn't do it. So if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Uh, so for the last two years, I was looking for ways of pushing the teacher forward. How do you make the teacher the star? Really right. starting to recognize like how important they were to the educational process. Mm-hmm. In January, I met Joe, who's my co-founder. And he was coming at the space from a legal and regulatory perspective. And he said, hey, the micro school space is taking off. This was yeah. pre-COVID. A lot of my work has becoming one-room schoolhouses, one-room school storefronts. Yeah. And so we started out just by trying to help those teachers. Uh, that, to me, seemed like a perfect way to help teachers and a way to push teachers forward. Problem there was that it just took too long. And the old model starting a school was at minimum a year-long process to raise funds and find students. Yeah. And COVID came along. Parents started asking for pods and we went from taking a year to start one to being able to launch a pod in 10 days, which was, wow. I think, I think our record at this point. Mm-hmm. That was the, the beginning of Schoolhouse. We started to see really quickly, as soon as we would connect a teacher with a lead parent, that there was a magic there that we could step back. Yeah. All of the pods that we started over the summer went incredibly well. Everybody renewed, just satisfaction scores above and beyond what we were expecting. And yeah. then we're seeing the same things now with all the ones that we've set up in the summer and into the winter now. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's how Schoolhouse started, was just looking for a way of making the teacher the star, making them the centerpiece. And that's yeah. what we're trying to do right now. Yeah, I'd like to get a little more specific with you about the actual model. You were talking about lead parent and... Can you talk through just how it works? A teacher is paired with a lead parent, how the students are assembled and where the teaching is delivered. That's all interesting stuff because I think people understand pods are happening, micropods sounds like an interesting idea, but they may not actually fully wrap their heads around what the product, what the learning experience is like. Yeah. So for us, that's primary, right? We're back. We're not going from the perspective of, oh, hey, people want pods, let's you know build them. We're coming out of what is actually a great learning experience and what will deliver great learning outcomes. And that just so happens to align with the pod pretty well. So we're really big on small class sizes. Six to eight students is the average. Some are smaller, some are a little bigger. We go after just top-notch teachers. So I think we have a 5% acceptance rate for the teachers that are coming in. Mm-hmm. And those two things together are just powerful. Yeah. If you have a great teacher in a small class size, it's, it's magic in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. We're in people's homes instead of like in a storefront. So if you have a dining room table, people have renovated basements and garages to look like schools. And they're actually pretty cool because uh, everything, including the curriculum, is personalized to the student, mm-hmm. right? So the space is personalized to the student. The curriculum is personalized to the student. The teacher really gets to know each of their students. Yeah. Like one of the things that I would see we work when I would talk to the teachers is they had a really strong sense of who like the top five students were and who the bottom five were, but the middle, they didn't really have a strong sense of how they were doing. Mm-hmm. In these small class sizes, each an individual student's strengths and weaknesses, and we're seeing teachers cultivate the program and right. alter the pod based on those groups. And that's just a fascinating educational experience to observe. Yeah, But yeah, that's our niche. It's small class sizes, great teachers at home with flexible curriculums, and everything's in person. Mm-hmm. So we are going in the opposite direction of where it seems like the education market is going right now to go more online. We're saying, no, we want to be in person. We yeah. want the teachers to really know their students. We want people to interact. 
And COVID helps that. These small groups, yeah. they have you know less vectors for COVID attack. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then just to the other uh, concept that's out there around the micro schools is the idea of the one-room schoolhouse of your and how students from different age levels and learning abilities and there's a diverse cohort that is all learning from each other is at least the the sort of idealized idea that is out there. How do you assemble the cohort of students? How do you figure out, is it that they all know each other and that it's sponsored yeah. through a lead parent of some kind? The majority of it is groups that already have some level of social connection. So they okay. either go to the same religious groups or they work together or they're in the mm -hmm. same neighborhood. There's some prior connection. There are cases where you can form groups of strangers. Those are more difficult. The easiest ones are a group of parents is already looking for an alternative and they come to you and you can help them with finding the teacher, getting the curriculum set up, getting the space set up, all the legal and regulatory insurance, yeah. all of those pieces. So we act as more of a back office or administration in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like student ages and things like that, we try to keep things within a year or two. Yep. At this, at these small class sizes, differentiating isn't that much of a problem. I was in a pod the week before last and I was observing the teacher just seeing what was happening. And one of the students started to fall behind. She gave the rest of them a, a quick thing to do on the side and work with that student one-on-one, -on -one, drilling yeah. them until they caught up. Mm -hmm. Took her about five minutes, then brought everybody else back in. Mm -hmm. You can do that. Or if you, know, you have a, one student who's in first grade, another in second, you can give them the same project, but maybe they have different end goals. Mm -hmm. So like the second grader, you're looking for a little bit more than you might from the first grader, or you just give yeah. them completely different projects. You can differentiate with six students in a way that you can't with 35. I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you were talking before when we were prepping about how the thing that's very difficult to scale is the attention of a great instructor. Can yeah. you talk a little more about that? Because I thought that was an interesting insight. Yeah, the thing that I, I'm probably rallying against the most these days is this concept of we need to scale the best teacher. And I think that really mistakes what the value of a teacher is in a lot of ways. Like, I think most people think of them as what a lecturer is, which is just information dissemination. If you find the person who can disseminate the information in the best way, then education will be solved. We can just scale that person endlessly. Yeah. But that's a part of what teaching is in a lot of ways, but there's also another portion what is like is a consultative act where it's the teacher really understanding you, what mistakes you tend to make, where your problems tend to be, and they can personalize the instruction to you. And I think the thing that I said to you is, you know, would you rather watch Richard Feynman's lectures online or would you rather have one-on-one -on -one time with him? You mm -hmm. want the one-on-one -on -one time. You yeah. want that consultative aspect. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that doesn't scale. And so the thing that I think we should be trying to scale is the amount of attention that each student gets from the teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that you scale high quality education is through these small class sizes and through pods. I think that's at least our bet. Yeah. And yeah. we're seeing that it's close to correct. Yeah. And you're measuring this too. You've talked about measurement a lot. How are you measuring? How do you know that it's working? Like, how are, how are you keeping track of the quality of the, the experiences that are being delivered? Yeah, lots of observation right now. That's, that's our primary focus is just going in and watching and making sure that can we see what's happening. We're doing lightweight formative assessments. So nothing super rigorous at this point. Mm -hmm. Just getting a sense of, hey, 
are they on grade level with the basics? Mm -hmm. The thing that's been most interesting to us is almost all of our teachers have come back and needed help redoing their unit plans because they're moving through the material faster than they used to. Mm -hmm. And so one of the benefits that I think that this model is actually going to provide and to prove out is that the old schedules were, and the old pace was for a 35 person classroom. Right. And that when you have these smaller classrooms, you can actually get a lot of teacher attention. Mm -hmm. You can move through a school day in maybe three hours instead of, you know, six or seven hour school day. Yeah. Yeah. And that leaves a ton of time for the student to go into things that interest them. Mm -hmm. We've had pods. The pods are, they're fascinating in the way that they become individualized and personalized to the, like the group's interests. Some of the teachers are teaching half day in Spanish because mm -hmm. the students are interested in that. Mm -hmm. Others like have found that the kids were interested in like water. We give all the teachers a budget. They've ordered water quality testing kits and they're mm -hmm. testing water quality in different places and really allowing the students to follow these interests because they're getting through the normal curriculum sometimes twice the pace. Mm -hmm. And so that data indicator right there is pretty telling. The next phase for schoolhouses is probably going to be um, to implement you know, a software assessment system that is super lightweight. Yep. One of the things we're really trying to figure out right now, and we're very young still, is how do we assess without really getting in the way, without incentivizing teachers to teach to the test? Yeah. That's one of the big like academic questions that we're asking ourselves. Mm -hmm. But right now it's a lot of observation. It's a lot of formative assessments. It's, it's a lot of just talking to the teachers and talking to the parents and making sure that, hey, you feel that they're on pace. Yeah. And then I imagine with the, the product development experience that you have, <laughs> in, in many ways, product development is all about getting to know your customers and trying to understand and measure what's working and what's not, whether it's a qualitative measure or a focus group, or if it is more quote unquote quantitative. Can you talk about how your product experience relates to developing this pod product and how in some ways you have to have your finger on the pulse of your audience and understand two sides of your audience. So you need to know what the teachers are thinking in terms of the product that's being delivered. And then also you have to understand how the, the parents, students, and families are thinking about what's being delivered. Yeah. There's a part of me that I can't wait to get to the point where we start building out all the academic tools um, <laughs> because of the last, you know, 10 years of my life have been building software systems that, you know, accelerate learning. Yeah. And these pods are just like the perfect blank canvas. And I'm using every bit of my will to not impose that and actually pay attention to what they need. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interesting things that we could do using the space repetition systems that we talked about before. Yeah. Adaptive learning systems differentiated curriculums, mm -hmm. those will probably, differentiated curriculums will probably be a huge portion of what we focus on in maybe like year two. Yeah. Just, just based on how the pods are personalizing right now. There's the base level stuff of student information system, checking in for a day, the day attendance, mm -hmm. parent teacher communication, all that stuff still we're using off the shelf stuff and rudimentary tools, but we'll probably enhance that. From a product perspective, one of the things that's become most interesting to me, is, and this came from talking to a few of the teachers, is they've said that, and, and you can really only do this well at these small class sizes, but they have said that they try to make extremely precise observations of the students and share those with the parent. 
and they see it as like the first step in getting a parent buy-in Mm-hmm. to then take a path based on that observation. Mm-hmm. So if they see that one of the students, for instance, is accelerating in math, they will say to the parent, We've, I've noticed that your child finishes the math homework first and they get high grades on that. And the parent will be like, yeah, I agree. They're really good. And, and then the teacher will be able to say, how about we take this accelerated math program? So like we can follow the state standards to a point, but how about we actually put a higher bar here? For this one student. Yeah. And that to me is the behavior right now that I'm most interested in mm-hmm. um, augmenting if we can. Because I think one of the benefits of these small groups in these small classrooms is the personalization that can come out of it. Yep. And you can do a lot of that with software, but it goes back to teacher attention, right? An observation is just attention. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm really thinking about in the short term is how do we build systems and tools and processes to enable that observation? Mm-hmm. And that will allow us to be incredibly student-centric and student-focused mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. really thinking about how do we make the best educational experience for the student? Mm-hmm. If we can get everybody aligned around there. So from a product perspective, that's a lot of what I'm thinking about right now. I'm pushing off my history yeah. and space repetition yeah. and differentiated learning and yeah. really trying to pay attention to, okay, what is actually happening in these things? Uh-huh. Let's put my preconceptions aside. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw Schoolhouse launching a like learning augmentation engine at yeah. some point in its uh, lifetime. Yeah, VR helmets and it's all coming down the road, but, but I appreciate your discipline as well, because uh, oh, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, the narrative of robot overlords and trying to automate the humans out of the, the scenario, which truth be told, I'm hashtag team human. So I'm happy to see you yeah. come over to our side. Maybe you're always there to begin with, but, but it's nice to hear that Schoolhouse has that in its DNA. The other aspect of what's very relevant to anything new and emerging these days is the question of access. So scale and access are always things that will come into play. You talked a little bit about scale before, where I imagine over time, the way in which you're going to scale is by replicating the model and connecting into a bigger and bigger teaching pool across different geographies. And again, over time, but separate from the scale question, although I'd still love to get more input from you on the scale question, more the access, who is this designed for? And it's 2020. So everyone's awareness of equity gaps is is much clearer and front and center. The micro school movement is something that seems great, but it may be challenging for for families of, of less socioeconomic means available to them. Any thoughts on that in terms of your approach or your vision for for where Schoolhouse is heading? Yeah, we're chomping at the bit to um, start working in those communities. It's a core value of the company and of everybody that's joined the team, I think if you look at their backgrounds, we've all come out of teaching and working in the schools, in, in, in neighborhoods like the ones that you're referencing. Yeah. So that's a core value. That's the thing that, that we think of, that we talk about every week in our, our meeting of just like, when and how can we get there? Yeah. So the two ways that we're thinking about it is, one, we want to make sure that if we take a product there, that it's going to be of high quality. Mm-hmm. We don't want a differentiated offering because of price point. Mm-hmm. And so the first part of that is just making sure that, hey, this is actually working as well as we think it is. Because mm-hmm. the worst case scenario would be to bring something in and it, it not actually work as well. Yeah. What we think we actually have is something that will work better. If anybody needs individualized attention, 
it's the students in these neighborhoods. So we're focusing first on quality, making sure that it works, reproducibility. And then the thing that's nice about what we're doing is it's actually cheaper than what the public schools are spending per student. So everybody says, oh, it's a, these pods are expensive. They're expensive because you actually have to pay for it <laughs> versus you know, a, right. a public school, which is free. Right. And so the things that we're working on now, there's the academic portion of saying, yes, this is working. Then there's a second piece of the product side. It's reproducible. We can do this at scale. We can move these in. And then there's the regulatory and, ph and philanthropic sides of things. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that's happening right now is actually on the regulatory and philanthropy to try to figure out how can we finance these things? Yeah. Um, because you have to pay a teacher their salary. Yeah. One of the things that I think goes overlooked in this conversation is just how teachers don't really have a path to earn more in their profession other than going into administration. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're really trying to focus on is giving great teachers an alternative pathway yeah. to, you know, earning more money and growing in their careers. And so when we go to these groups, we basically talk to these philanthropic groups and we say, look, mo the, almost all the money is going to the teacher. We're just acting as a, a mechanism to, to finance that. How can we pay for great teachers to go in and start cleaning up and working with and, really helping people in these neighborhoods mm -hmm. because I think that's how this is going to happen is like people who care getting to know their students really well working mm -hmm. in small groups and so that is our last hurdle is figuring out how do we actually get the the teacher's salary handled because mm -hmm. once that's in place yeah. then there's no limit we're starting off with the people who can afford it and who can pay so that we can see how it works and learn yeah. from it and, and grow Mm -hmm. But this is, I would say, in our short-term and long-term roadmaps is we want everybody to have access to a great education, yeah. whether that's us augmenting and supplementing the public schools in their areas with mm -hmm. after-school and enrichment programs, or whether that's just offering people in, in rural areas who might live miles from their school and the school is underfunded, a way of forming together with the people around them and bringing in a great teacher. Right. Right. I think where we're going to come in is, is, is similar to where Airbnb was, where you could stay in a hotel or you could stay on your friend's couch. Right. You can go to an expensive private school or you can go to the public school that both of those might be of varying quality. We want to offer a third option that gives parents high amounts of customizability, mm -hmm. a very reasonable price and measurable high quality. Yeah. And so that's our approach. It's, it's a tough nut to crack educational entrepreneurs and state governments have been trying to handle this problem for hundreds of years. We're about a year in, so yeah. we need a little bit more time, but it's, yeah, yeah. It, this is the bullseye for us. This is where we want to be. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting year too on a number of fronts for a venture like this. The growth of the homeschooling, this seems adjacent to that. Yep. It, it is a concurrent trend, like even creativity around class outside and alternative environments in which to teach. I have a two-year-old. I stroll him over to uh, Prospect Park pretty regularly here in Brooklyn, and you can see all the preschoolers out there sitting around in circles learning from each other. It does, it does make me wonder how much of that could be replicable with older cohorts. And I, I think you're touching on a lot of this in what you're beginning to unlock at Schoolhouse. I did want to spend a, a moment or two on what makes a teacher a good pod teacher? That's a fun question. Flexibility, probably. So one of the things that was interesting about just what makes a great teacher overall, if you did like a principal component analysis, 
one of the things that we found at another job when we had asked teachers why they became teachers. And if they talked about the student teacher relationship, that was typically a pretty strong signal that they were going to be great in the classroom for us. If they talked about like the love of the subject matter and things like that. It was great, but we found a really, this was at a previous job, a really high correlation mm-hmm. with that. And I would say if you're a pod teacher, it's probably that times five or that times 10. It's mm-hmm. really wanting to not just teach to the test, not just teach the curriculum, but act as a craftsman in shaping the mind and the personality and the love of learning for each student, right? Mm-hmm. The, best, the best pod teachers that I've spoken to They've had a few characteristics. One is that they want to act as a craftsman. They want to come up with unique and clever and personalized lessons for their students and for their groups. And I think the other one that I hadn't thought about going in is the ability to be good at setting boundaries. Mm. So one of the interesting things that we noticed is that you're in someone's home. Mm-hmm. So at least one of the kids knows where the snack drawer is. <laughs> right? At least one of the kids knows where the root beer is. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and you don't have the, the social norms that come, become with being yeah. in a classroom. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the, the, the teachers said it to me best. He said, you lose a little bit of time up front resetting norms and boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be good at that. But the top line speed of just how quickly you can teach and how personalized you can be here more than makes up for it. And I think that's the real trade-off that happens, at least in the early days of a pod. So I would say really student focused, really wanting, if you're a teacher and you really want to have a classroom that is personalized and reactive and really integrates the student's interest, then the pod is perfect for you. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about these pods they they take on a group identity so almost all of our pods have names Mm -hmm. the students chose the name they do that themselves Mm -hmm. we don't institute it and some of the teachers will also implement value systems on top of it which Mm -hmm. i find to be amazingly fascinating so one teacher that I'm, i'm thinking of he told me that you know he has their pod is called the diamond pod and they have 11 values and he gives out value dollars that can be exchanged for different types of rewards whenever one of the, the children expresses one of the values. And it's pushed itself into the homes of the students. So I guess one of the, the students, their brother, was teasing them, and they didn't react back. And he said, look, mom, I'm showing fortitude. <laughs> and so I think if you have a teacher that can think beyond just the curriculums and mm-hmm. think about how am I shaping the personalities here? Yeah. And how can I use the group to help enforce that? It's just so many fascinating things, like from an educational and pedagogical perspective that are coming out of this, that yeah. <laughs> there's like two books probably worth of just material <laughs> that we're picking up every month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's, those would be the things. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, great. That's great. And, and then just so I'm clear, like what age groups are you focused on? Yeah, we do K through eight. And it, it mostly because you have to start somewhere, right? Like if yeah. you try to do everything, we'd be boiling the ocean. A right. lot of it skews younger. Yeah. We, we don't do preschool mm-hmm. uh, at this point because that's more caretaking. There's a lot that happens in the preschool age. I think by and large, some of the most important years are zero to three. 
Yeah. But for us, it's a different regulatory environment. Yeah. It's more about caretaking than it is about academics and education, which is our real interest. And so we're putting ourselves in the K through eight space and mm-hmm. saying, hey, if you're looking for a better educational and more personalized educational experience for your children, mm-hmm. this is it. Yeah. Um, we really think that these small classrooms are by far more effective in just about every way than yeah. the traditional classroom. And if that's something that you're interested in, like I would highly recommend looking into a pod or looking into a micro school. Yeah, that makes sense. And a lot of the research that I've been reading is talking about how critical it is, particularly you maybe K through three to have access to, to an in-person experience and then the, in the home, clearly, the, the, many of the challenges of COVID and the pandemic response make the in-the-home piece make a ton of sense as well. The other thing I wanted to make sure we talked about was where you see this heading. So in a forecasting mindset, where might this go? And what are you most hopeful or curious about in terms of its upside potential? Yeah, my most like fervent hope is that we can offer a third alternative to what is a standardized education at this point, mm-hmm. 35 children to a classroom. Our big vision is to provide teachers with an alternative pathway in their career that isn't into administration. Right now, teachers are incredibly limited. If they want to make more in their career, if they want to grow in their career, they, for the most part, have to move into an administrative role. And so for teachers who love to teach, who love the art and the act of teaching, we want to provide them an alternative pathway where they can come in they can start a pod. They can grow that potentially into multiple pods. Yeah. We have teachers right now who are building out like customized programs. Yep. And we're working with them to, in essence, franchise it in some ways. Yeah. We, so we really want to make the profession of teaching something that you can continuously do and continuously grow in. Mm-hmm. We think of ourselves as a home for teachers more than a home for pods. Yeah. My most fervent hope is that we can create an alternative schooling system that anybody anywhere can bring in and set up for their family, right? Mm-hmm. If you have, you know, a special interest or a special need or just a special child and you think, hey, I'd love to have a teacher <laughs> personalizing the content and personalizing the curriculum for them or just have a great an environment where there's no bullies. Yeah, yeah. There's only six of you. There's only yeah. eight of you. You've got to get along. Yeah. Now we're working to, we're looking long-term and thinking like, okay, how do we bring pods together so that there's yep. you know, more people? Mm-hmm. The pandemic is stopping a lot of that work. Of course. The thing that I actually think is going to happen is at some point in the future, whether it's 10 years, whether it's 30 years, whether it's a hundred years, I think we'll look back and think of a one teacher and 35 or a hundred student classroom as travesty might be too harsh of a word, but yeah. as just ineffective and mm-hmm. inefficient compared to what you can really do at these small class sizes. Yeah, I hope yeah. that's the innovation that takes off. Mm-hmm. I hope that people start to recognize that the teacher's attention, the teacher's ability to recognize strengths and weaknesses and areas of opportunity in the student is actually the thing that is of highest value. Mm-hmm. And we start designing educational curriculums, pedagogies around that. Yeah, I think what's actually happening now in the market, as a quick aside, I think the next year is going to be a lot of parents questioning 
why they're making the educational choices they are for their children. Yep. It was an unthinking thing that you would just enroll your kid in the local school, the private school, whatever. Mm -hmm. A lot of parents, I think, are questioning that now, are questioning how much they can get engaged. Yeah. And I think what's going to come out of that is a lot of alternative structures, pods, micro schools, blended learning. Mm -hmm. I think in the three to five years after that, the instructional designers will follow suit and that's when things will start to get really interesting. Mm -hmm. When they start breaking out of the paradigms of a 35 student classroom that runs 180 days a year. It's so yeah. similar to what Netflix did or HBO did for this, like the sitcom. Yeah. You could write a 30 minute or an hour sitcom before and now you have a whole series that you can binge watch. Right. That's going to take a, a couple of years when instructional designers start thinking differently. Mm -hmm. um, but that is where I, I see the whole thing going. I see this hopefully differentiation and breaking apart yeah. of the school system. Yeah, it's great. I just recently had uh, Prakash Nair on the show and he's a school uh, architect. So he, he builds schools and he talked about how a lot of it is just replicating the same physical plan that came yep. into being in the early 20th century. And he calls it a cells and bells model, which is all centered. <laughs> I'm stealing that. Yeah, please do. And it's centered around the, the model of the classroom with one teacher in it. And he's trying to design education design is really an interesting architecture is an interesting idea. When you remove the whole concept of a school building as a foundational construct, it does allow you to be much more flexible, nimble, and creative in terms of the types of structures that replace it, which is why it's really, you got my wheels turning, Brian. This is some interesting, interesting well, action on your part. Yeah. Yeah. And a fascinating piece of the pods is that we're seeing the teachers come together in these sort of, you know, we didn't do anything for it, but ad hoc groupings. So yeah. one teacher is stronger in math and science, another is in English and language arts, and they switch students on different days mm -hmm. we're seeing just groupings of teachers come together that all agree on a certain pedagogical style and they're now a group of four pods that are all really into montessori or reggio emilio mm -hmm. or waldorf right the, the thing that actually like really excites me is i don't think you find the next maria montessori by pushing her into a normal public school k through 12 classroom yep. and I, by the way i love public school k through 12 sure. classrooms they've done right. a lot for us the public school system i think is in a lot of ways, a, a miracle. And I think it, it, it does more good for us than a lot of people want to realize. But I think you, the way you're going to find the next Miriam Montessori is by giving her a small group, letting her find her own way, letting yeah. her find things that work mm -hmm. and letting that catch on. Mm -hmm. right? We're mm -hmm. seeing right now that as teachers find things that work, they share them with other teachers. Yeah. You know, methodologies are spreading amongst the pods because, hey, this works and this works really well. Mm -hmm. And that's how you grow a new educational movement, I think, yeah. or at least yeah. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. That would be a great outcome. Very cool <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so we got a little bit of your forecasting head on. Before we get there, folks want to learn more about what Schoolhouse is doing. Where should they go? What should they look for? Just go to www.getschoolhouse.com. Okay. And then I'm at Brian Tobel on Twitter if you want okay. to see my inane educational thoughts. <laughs> I, I, I tend to work in public. So if you actually look back through my Twitter timeline, you can see the different points where I was like, oh, hey, teachers are really important. Here's the data. <laughs> I wonder what happens when you do small classrooms. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I tend to work in public there. You're, you're an open book, which is great. But, but the other thing we'd love to hear as we begin to wrap up is what else is out there in the world beyond what we've talked about so far 
that is capturing uh, your imagination. Uh, I, I really liked, by the way, when you were talking about the the Airbnb model as applied to say K through eight education is a really interesting idea. So any of these types of trends that you're seeing, you're obviously someone who's looking out in the world and then trying to think about what that might mean for the future of learning, the future of education. So anything, anything of note, anything that comes to mind uh, for our listeners? Yeah, I'm, I'm always a huge fan of any space repetition system. And if you're, you haven't even a minor interest in learning, the research around it is, is pretty fascinating. The new thing though that I'm really fascinated by is it's, it's a nascent movement and it's, they're calling it tools for thought. And it's groups of people, software engineers, product designers, a lot of them on Twitter, who are thinking about creating different tools to augment thought. Hmm. And one of the ones that I'm moderately obsessed with at this point, it's called Rome Research. Okay. And essentially just a notebook that is a series of bullets that allows you to create backlinks and associations between things. Hmm. So if you type in space repetition or something like that, you could click on it and see every note you've ever had on that topic hmm. in a separate pane. Hmm. And so it really allows you to go back through old notes, correlate thoughts. It's made writing and thinking vastly easier for me. And there's a whole movement of people now that are playing around with different user interfaces, different ways of helping people tie notes and thoughts and those things together. And so the tools for thought space, I think, is an infant right now, but I think yeah. there's going to be some pretty big and fascinating companies coming out of there. It's, it's maybe where social media was when Facebook was just at Harvard. Yeah. And so I think the next big thing in learning and education is going to come from that space. Mm. And I also think it's going to come from the people who are really looking at making the teachers shine. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see Teachable is doing very well Yep. in companies like that. But yeah, the tools for thought space, like that is where I think the real innovation and like the real brilliant minds are right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And also I'm always going to promote space repetition. Yeah. If, if you're a learning nerd and you're interested in, in learning and you're not using space repetition, you're really a fascinating tool. <laughs> yeah, you made me think of a portmanteau. A learning nerd is a lerd. I hadn't actually uh, <laughs> thought of that before, but that might, maybe there's something there. I don't know. We'll focus group it with, with our audience to see what their perspective is. Also, another quick uh, tip, which I got from Brian at that storied uh, cup of coffee about a year ago is inspectional reading, oh which is another <laughs> tip on, on how to really consume and digest a book that you, a physical book which is like a tools for thought idea too. Like if more broadly, it's, it's a little bit like cognitive hacks or ways to be more efficient in how you get the, the, the concepts and the learning into yeah. your mind. Any concluding thoughts on that? Cause that was a nice tip. I learned it, learned it from you. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's a, from a, a, that's a blog post I wrote for a, a group called super organizers, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of my favorite super nerdy <laughs> blogs to read but basically it's a distillation of a book called how to read books which is i think like 400 pages mm. and the the big thing that i took out of that book and i think a lot of people disrupt their reading habit by feeling that a they need to finish every single book that they start yes and the other thing too is nobody you can't really tell when you first start a book how interested or how useful it is to you mm -hmm. and the basic you know premise of that book and the the post that I wrote for it is 
how to use the index of a book to go and find the places that are interesting to you and to mm. get a sense of the book's actual value to you. Right. Right. In 15 or 20 minutes, if you follow that methodology, you can get a sense of, is this book valuable to me at all? Mm -hmm. And if you just continuously follow it, you can pull out all of the useful stuff in a couple hours without actually yeah. having to read the entire thing. Mm -hmm. So there are books where I've only really read three or four chapters. Management books in, yeah. in particular right. are notoriously bloated, but there are some gold in there that you yeah. can go find. Yeah, yeah. And when you pair something like that with a tool like Rome or a space repetition system, mm -hmm. you can really start to piece together knowledge of a domain. And that's the second half and maybe the third half of that post that I, I didn't get to is that if you can pull out the little pieces of a book using the index that are valuable to you and mix and match them with pieces from other books, mm -hmm. then you can start to like network together your, your thoughts on it. You can start yeah. to understand where the domain is at, where the controversies are at in the domain. So anyways, what was it? I forget what they titled that post. Was it inspectional reading or something like that? You just that search the, my that name was the, and reading it'll probably come up. That I got from you. Yeah. yeah. So no, I thought yeah. it was... And definitely, and it was at Brian Tobal, T-O-B-A-L is the last name, B-R-I-A-N Tobal on, on Twitter, if folks are interested. And it's getschoolhouse.com is the website. Uh, fascinating conversation. Very happy to have you on. We were talking about Get You On a while ago, and I'm very happy that we did. Maybe we'll get you back again soon. You have certainly have plenty of interesting uh, stuff on your horizon, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. Any final thoughts, Brian, as we wrap up here? No, I'm just excited we finally got to do this. Uh, and I'm happy to come back and do a jam session on space repetition and personal learning. And I think if anybody's interested in autodidacticism, happy to come in and jam on that. But I would say space repetition, one-on-one -on -one coaches, and yeah. great note-taking system is the way to go there. Awesome. <laughs> That's final thoughts. Awesome. All right, great, so great stuff. Thanks so much, uh, Brian, for joining. For our listeners, thanks as always. For listening, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, subscribe, write us a review. We appreciate you being out there. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.